0: I'm Brian Hyatt And this is Rolling Stone Music Now And I'm really excited to be in the studio with the Zombies Rod Argent and Colin Blunstone. Hi guys Hi everyone It's great to be here, thanks Brian And they are about to be inducted By the time you hear this They may have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Congratulations Thanks very much It's really, really exciting
1: Um, We're absolutely thrilled to be here
0: For the sake of our listeners who cannot see you If you could just uh,
1: say who you are And what you do in the Zombies (laughs) Okay, I'm Colin Blunstone. I'm the lead singer in The Zombies and have been since about 1961.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I'm Rod Argent. I was the lead singer for about 20 minutes in our first rehearsal (laughs) in 1961.
0: Was it really just the first rehearsal?
2: Yeah. yeah, That's when Colin and I met. You know, we've been friends all our lives. I didn't know him at all,
1: but we took a coffee break in the middle of the rehearsal. We've been doing an instrumental rob being the lead singer he hadn't done anything at that point and he went over to a broken old piano in the corner of the room and he played nut rocker by Bee bumble and the stingers hmm. And I was absolutely amazed. He was so far ahead of what we were doing. I didn't know him, but I said, you have to play keyboards in the band. And he said, no, this is a rock and roll band. It's got to be all guitars. (laughs) But then right at the end of this first rehearsal, I just played a little bit of guitar and sang a Ricky Nelson song. And he said, I'll tell you what, I was blown away, actually. I said, if you'll be the lead singer, I was just singing to myself. But he said, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboards. So we
2: swapped chairs around on the very first day. And that was the zombies. You know, I think it worked out. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure yet. I'll tell you later no, today. No, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're still testing things. <laughs> we'll,
0: we'll know on Friday when you get your trophy for the rock and roll <laughs> fans. <family>. yeah, <laughs> no, yes.
2: So but you knew each other before that no. no, no, okay, I was desperate to form a band I have to tell you this since I'd been turned on to rock and roll by my cousin Jim Rodford who is a famous musician In his own right. He was a founding member of Argent with me He um, was with the kinks for 15 years on their biggest ever selling albums, etc. Cetera, etc cetera. And he played me Elvis. he was a bit older than me and he was in a, a very early electric band And I'd seen them I was four years younger than him completely blown away with this and i thought i have to form a band as soon as i can and when i met a guy who was playing guitar at my school i thought right this is my chance you know and got a few people together i had a friend who happened to go to the same school as colin and he said can i bring him along he plays guitar and sings a bit i said yeah within two weeks we had our first rehearsal and in the most extraordinary way all the people that were there somehow gelled and we started to get a big following in St. Albans. Within a year and a half, we were playing to 400 people in St. Albans. We got the record contract with Decca. We had a number one record with our first song. One of the first songs I'd ever written. In the States, it went to number one. It was pretty magical, actually. Well, let's hear She's Not There for a minute. Tell me about her The way she lied
1: Well, no one told me about
0: What a great song. How how did you write it? What do you remember about that?
2: I'll tell you exactly how I remember writing it. I had two weeks before the session, and our producer had said to Chris and I, why don't you try and write... Well, he said to all of us, actually, why don't you try and write something? I
1: completely ignored this bit of the conversation. Why don't you try and write something for the first session? Went
2: in one ear and
1: out of the the other ear. And Rod went away and wrote, she's not there. So it just shows a different
2: attitude to the But I'll tell you how I wrote it. I thought, OK, I've got two weeks. I had no idea that if I presented something, people might not be able to get their heads around it. You know, I just imagined it would all be great if I could produce something. And I put on some old blues records that I had. I remember I put on John Lee Hooker album. And one of the tracks on the album was called No One Told Me. Now, mm. I rushed to say that in no way has the melody or the rest of the lyric got anything to do with the John Lee Hooker song. But I just like the way that phrase tripped off my tongue. And I went to the piano and I started constructing a story around that. And I played some chords that I liked and just built the song up. The only idea I had in my head was I wanted it to start with a very bluesy, moody sort of beginning and then build... To the end, it's got a very strange construction. Actually, she's not there. It's got it's in three parts, and and then it repeats itself. But to build in, uh, start in a minor way, end on this big climactic major chord you know with she's not there and then fall back down to a very moody Mm. bluesy thing again that was the only thing that was in my mind within a week it was written i presented it to the guys they loved it thank god we knew it was special as soon as i was
1: utterly amazed i had no idea he could write songs Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and as soon as we heard it we knew it was special so he would sing it his version of it to you and uh, nothing's changed we still do that in fact we're rehearsing songs for the next album wow and I've already been down to Rod's place two or three times to listen to new material. We always start that way, and he will play me the song so that I understand that song really, really well before we play it to the band. A follow-up single was Tell
0: Her No, which is a great song that people might not know as well. Let's hear that for a second. No,
2: no, 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 no. What do you remember about that one? Well, uh, at the time, I remember we'd just been on tour, one of our early tours in the UK, with the Isley Brothers, with Dion Warwick, or you call call a Warwick here, don't you? But w- whatever. Um, and, of course, she was singing lots of Burt Bacharach songs. And I'd heard some Burt Bacharach songs and was, like everybody else, was completely knocked out with his style of writing, which was so peculiar to him. It was like nothing else. And also, I loved immediately the jazzy construction of his chords. And I thought, I have to write a song. You know, I don't want to get too technical, but includes major ninths and all these sort of intervals. Yeah. Uh, quite jazzy chordal intervals. And I did. I mean, it's quite a simple song to tell a no, but it includes ninths and thirteenths and everything i just wanted to do that and it was written very quickly and again the guys loved it and we recorded it very quickly it's quite interesting with uh, the writing of
1: the zombies material i mean i've written one or two songs but that's all the major writers are rod argent and chris white but as an observer it's always struck me as interesting that the songs sound very simple <coughs> i think this is the wonderful thing about their writing but if you actually analyze it it's quite sophisticated writing and I know that bands try to master zombie's tunes. I mean not all bands but some bands and they really struggle trying to find out what those chords are cuz they're not what you think they are.
0: Well I think Rod writes like a composer
2: in some ways, you know. Well that's a compliment, thank you.
0: Absolutely. Where did both that musical approach and your musical knowledge come from because you obviously knew what you were doing
2: from the beginning. I, I was passionate about music since the age of about 5 years old. Basically, my mother encouraged me on a very classical part by playing some pretty populist classical music i have to say that's what she loved you know romantic things but she got me involved in a really really good church choir when i was a young boy and that exposed me to fantastic music classical music Bach, stravinsky you know all these things and it blew me away i absolutely loved it and that gave me almost by osmosis a feeling for structure and for harmony but it had nothing to do in my mind with the rock and roll that i was so turned on with when i first heard it but it was an indirect influence which i just sort of drank in so there was that but i also believe in those days i mean today there's so much sampling and ways of making a track sound fantastic within about an hour because you can pull down a great drum loop you can put a couple of sampled licks on top of it and you've almost got a record before you start in those days the only way to make something really work and communicate with people was to get the structure right and then somehow quite naturally people don't have to understand that but it just has to resonate with them and it has to work and in those days you had to work at that and i think i was always pretty good at naturally feeling what a good structure was for a song and that's part of composing in, in whatever music you're talking about i mean the beatles were intuitive masters of that absolutely in those days people were much more concerned with interesting chords i mean and chord sequences because that was a way of communicating with people to my mind that happens less now yes but that was a really innovative part of what rock and roll and popular music was at that time and it had all the passion of youth but it had this sort of structure and this idea that you could explore in a cutting edge sort of way and Part of that was because the older guys in the industry, they knew that something amazing was going on. They didn't understand any of it. So they didn't try and categorize you and playlist everything and say, no, we're only playing this sort of music. They said, well, I don't know what you're doing but go ahead and so it meant that things could be really cutting edge and did that diminish the audience no it did not they drank it up and you know because they just heard things that they felt were really working so i think it was a wonderful time for music not only in rock and roll but i mean in jazz i think it was a fantastic time with the early Miles Davis band of 58 and just as I was being completely turned on with early Elvis I was also knocked out with listening to John Contra and Cannibal Ladley with the early Miles band I can still sing you every note of the solos on Milestones, which was the first Miles Davis album that I ever bought. Well,
0: you know, and and I could go down this rabbit hole for a long time, but I do think it's really interesting. People don't realize the extent to which all the great jazz of the time was influencing people yourself, even influencing David Bowie and other, you know, I think there's a book to be written even about the untold influence of jazz on the great bands of the 60s and even 70s. I think
2: really, I remember also the first time that I ever heard Jimmy Smith. I mean, that really influenced me wanting to play some drums driving mm. Hammond organ it really did and you know and things like hold your head up for instance when I had a Hammond uh, with argent which is my yeah. second band it was just a joy but without people like Jimmy Smith I would have never have known that that avenue actually existed yeah it was a very influential time and also being turned on to so much to people like the early Elvis I've always felt in a way that was my way of discovering black music by proxy because he was the first guy that I'd heard that started to explore those pathways and very soon and this wasn't only me and many people at that time started to think Well, who did this originally? Well, it was Big Mama Thornton. And I heard her record of it. I thought, this is fantastic. And then very soon, me and many other people got turned on because of that to Ray Charles. The early Ray Charles is still some of my favourite music.
0: Oh, it's amazing.
2: Uh, I mean, it even influenced our last album, which actually made the top 100 in Billboard, which we were completely, still got that hunger. There's a song called Edge of the Rainbow. And one evening, I was with my wife, and I said, let's put some early Ray Charles on. And we play things like Hard Times and all those wonderful, soulful, gospely early Ray Charles things. And I said, I'm going to write a song with that sort of chord construction. Yeah. And I knew that by the time it had gone through our filter and that I'd given it to Conin, it wouldn't sound anything like Ray Charles. Although, interestingly, this very fine pianist said to me once after we played, he said, I love that song, Edge of the Rain, but it reminded me of a sort of early Ray Charles. But it doesn't go. overtly. But because we do everything still, in the original keys, I had all, all fun. Cre-
0: all credit to Colin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I,
2: I had fun by building this song, and at the end, it climaxes on a note that's even higher than the top note on "She's Not There," because I knew that he would enjoy that at the very oh, end. Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is not true. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> to get back to the narrative of the band, because I didn't want to just, you know, just tell your story since you are uh, this is the occasion of your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. So, you know, famously, part of your story is just a sense that you were before your time or something and just always kind of battling against the, the music industry and at some point Decca Records kind of became convinced that maybe they were back in the wrong horse or something and they started cutting your promotional budget and all that for the first album and that was a thing right? I think right? they
1: probably did I, yeah. I think one of the problems that we had was that the band always took their musical inferences from such a wide spectrum of music and in the industry probably even true today the industry likes to categorize you because we took our influences from classical music and modern jazz which we've just discussed but also rhythm and blues and the blues it confused people and they didn't know how to categorize us so it was one of our great strengths because it made us sound different but because it confused the industry, that was a real disadvantage for us, I think. And and as you said, DECA lost their enthusiasm for us, and eventually we transferred to CBS. But even then, they put us on a small label. We weren't on CBS, we were on date records. And with London, we were on what was it? Do you know what? I can't remember. We were on Parrot. Um. Parrot? <laughs> well, she's with, not there. With Decca, we were on Parrot. And with CBS, we were on date records, because I don't think they had the confidence in it. So they put us on these small labels, not on the main label. So of course, we didn't get huge promotion budgets or marketing budgets. And I mean, this is the thing with Odyssey and Oracle. Who can explain what happened with Odyssey and Oracle? I know Rod says we got some good reviews. Possibly we did, but basically it was ignored when it came out. It didn't chart, it didn't sell. Commercially, it was a disaster. And then over a period of 10 years, just perhaps through word of mouth, no one's promoting it, no one's marketing it, but somehow it started to get attention, and it's just built on year on year. But it took about 10 years for anyone At to least. be interested.
0: Well, yeah, they're talking about one of the greatest albums of all time, Odyssey and Oracle, which was the second and album by the... And yet I'm, it was totally ignored. And totally ignored went. for many years. But before you got there, there was a period where... <laughs> didn't you guys go and do
1: some crazy residency in the Philippines? We did. Yeah. We had an agent whose business ethics were... Very <laughs> questionable. In, very interesting, in I the, was going to say. In the music industry? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I know, know it's very I hard I have never believe heard that. of this before. But he introduced this adventure to us, sort of saying, look, guys, first of all, you won't lose any money. Th- thought, yeah. This was an okay. improvement. I thought this is, sounds really good. You're going to a, a <laughs> tropical island, you know, you can sit on the beach in the day, and we would be playing in a bar in the evening, in a we hotel. Thought, mm-hmm. This is what we're thinking. Well, we arrived in the Philippines, which is, is the third biggest English-speaking nation in the world. People forget that. It's a big place. We had about four records in the top ten. We opened to 28,000 people, but the real kicker was... Our agent had managed to negotiate this so that we got £80 between us a night for 10 nights. And we're playing to 28,000 people a In night. In the same place, a residency. Yes, it's a residency. Yeah. It was the Araneta Coliseum. It's huge. And uh, the second night, we played a matinee. We In the afternoon, we played a matinee to 15,000. And Saturday night, we played to 32,000. But we still got the 80 quid, <laughs> which was a, it was a vast improvement on what we'd been earning up to then. But even we could work that right out. (laughs) that this was not a good deal and we did actually split from that agent after that Hey I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music
0: Now I'm in the studio with the Zombies and we are talking about their entire career and we're just up to the part where they came back from the Philippines and Part of the thought was you guys realized that you wanted to produce yourselves and do something that you were really
2: capable really, of. Really, that was very important. I mean, Chris White and I, who were the writers in the band, were getting very frustrated with the way our recent singles have been turning out. We felt the harmonies weren't being presented in the right way. We felt that some of the balls in the records that we were playing in the studio were not transferring to the recorded.
0: There was a song called It Was Going Out Of My Head, which is like
1: a the, Little Anthony cover. That, that's the last song that was produced by our original producer, ken jones and we actually came back from the philippines which had been a very the people in the philippines were wonderful but there were all sorts of political and economic problems while we were there so we came back completely drained from the philippines and we listened to the mix which had been done while we were away of going out of my head it was a disaster (laughs) because of that it led directly to us producing ourselves but in the production seat would be rod argent and chris white producing their own songs
2: and we were knocked out because for the first time we went into abbey road this great studio the beatles had just walked out having finished uh, sergeant pepper
1: literally studio
0: two right the same no, no we, were in, we
2: three. were in studio three. Okay,
1: three. okay okay they did use studio three but
2: sometimes mostly yeah. they were okay. in
1: studio two it's yeah. only down the same corridor.
2: engineers though brian yeah, yeah jeff,
0: jeff, emmerich. Jeff, emmerich
1: jeff emmerich and peter vince yeah. and
2: we saw jeff a week before he died he came to a concert in uh, los angeles when we were playing with arcade fire and he came back afterwards and said oh man i love that he said we have to produce another record together oh, we have so to do sad. that and he kept on and on about it and before he left he said don't forget he said i'm not just saying this let's get it set now he said we recorded that really quickly he said you know this is something we should do again and a week later he was dead that's really sad. Uh, it was very, very Ge- sad. Jeff
0: wrote a wonderful book about his uh, yeah, his time with I've the Beatles. That.
2: I think he's in a way one of
0: the most overlooked and important rock and roll figures of the 60s because his engineering helped create some phenomenal records very much Odyssey and Oracle among them I mean oh, it's absolutely. a remarkable I mean you know all credit to, to you guys of course but the sounds are very much of a piece in a way and you've talked about this with the Beatles records there's a little bit of that same pixie dust on
2: there George Martin said that with Revolver Jeff was one of the he might he was in his teenage years and he said that he was the young buck who come in he said really really Jeff was responsible for Revolver more than any other person in the whole building. He said he was the guy who said you call that top this is top and he would take the treble control and just turn it 100% sort of full (laughs) up and he said an an eye George said an eye and all the other guys the technical guys they're saying well whoa you can't do that but he said listen man that's it you know and that sort of young fresh energy in his ears was a large part of the honesty and the drive of that early Beatles sound I think and you were actually playing I think John Lennon's Mellotron Yeah, he'd left it in the studio. I just jumped on it, really, and I never asked permission from anybody. (laughs) And so thank you, John, for for that.
1: It's so funny because Mellotron is all over Odyssey and Oracle. And if John Lennon's Mellotron hadn't been there, it probably would have been a different album. And also, I was really thrilled because there were all percussion instruments lying around on the floor. And we knew that the Beatles had left (laughs) these percussion. And and we were picking, we're huge Beatles fans. And we were picking these percussion instruments up from their session. They'd just finished, you know. It was a wonderful time. It was a great time to be in Abbey Road at that time with those engineers it was these stu- we were so fortunate because we were on cbs as we just said and as far as i know up until that moment the only artists who had used abbey road were emi artists yeah i'm not quite sure how we got in there yeah but, but we did and i didn't question it because that's where we wanted
2: to be actually strangely enough that had a lot to do with ken jones our original producer who was a fine musician but an older school guy and this is what we were so frustrated with the way that some of the singles were sounding but he was very autocratic we were never allowed into the mixes or anything like that on that first album that you touched on a while ago you have to remember on that first album in those days an album was always just an adjunct to a hit single so like the beatles first album we recorded our first album in a day and a half and that included all the mixes and everything (laughs) so that meant for instance that there was a a muddy water song we used to do on stage which is got my mojo working and i used to sing it and for some reason that day i decided to sing it in a very mannered way and i did it and i came back into this studio the control room and i said well i think the track sounds good but oh god just let me go back and do one more take and i'll do it like i normally do it he said no next track you know so it was that sort of autocracy of, mean, <laughs> of his approach <laughs> I, in those a, days
1: another example of that was with <laughs> tell her no which was a huge i think it was a top five single, yeah it was sold in America, a million yeah. Copies. the guys are in the studio laying down about five backing tracks during the evening We were playing constantly on the road and i was tired and they were doing these backing tracks and i fell asleep and they woke me up to go and do the vocals on the backing tracks and we got to tell her no because i was half asleep i mumbled the second chorus Mm. it doesn't make any sense
2: as i remember your (laughs) lyrics were there's
1: something like that i went back into the controller and i said ken to the producer i'm really sorry but i was half asleep i mumbled the chorus he said don't worry about that that's fine and that's how it went out and he was right
2: it sold nearly a million copies but nevertheless ken all those years later before odyssey and *Uncle*, we said look ken we want to produce an album ourselves and to his credit he said okay fine i'll help you and he got us the studio time wow. at abbey road so in one way that was extremely generous of him he said if i'm doing it i want to be 100 percent in control if i'm not I'll help you do what you want to do. Sgt. Pepper's Pet Sounds,
0: these were the albums at the time where they were pushing boundaries. Were there other things that I think possibly were on your mind? Were there other models or things were on your mind as you were working on this record? Well,
2: Sgt. Pepper wasn't really an influence on us because it hadn't come out as we started to record. <laughs> right, right, right. But, I think Pet Sounds was a big indirect influence. I don't mean we copied anything musical about the album, but I always remember in my writing, very often, even from She's Not There, I used to start with the bass and drum phrases. That would be the first thing that I composed. And I know Brian thought very much in that way as well. These melodic bass lines, etc. he'd always thought in that way, and I had as well. But with Pet Sounds, it struck me that he'd taken that to another level, and that really excited me. And that was one of the things that I went into writing my few songs on Odyssey and Oracle with those sort of things in mind, those sort of compositional elements. And like the beginning of Care of Self 44 and those bass phrases, they were the first thing that were written from the song, etc., etc. So in an indirect way, and also the way you talked earlier about construction, well, in the way that Brian constructed the songs on pet sounds in such a masterly way that excited me as well so in an indirect way i feel that pet sounds was really influenced it sort of pointed out what you could do how you could take this music on at that time and the other thing was the peace and love thing which we were very conscious of the naivety of a lot of it but at the same time it was the first time when a whole youth culture had been able to see really what went on you know with the vietnam war there was some footage that was coming back that sort of showed some of the reality of it for the first time and it was causing a huge difference in young people's thinking and all that was permeating the music and you couldn't but help tune in to some way even with all the naivety that was going on to that vibe and in things like time of the season those sort of feelings and those sort of elements did affect the overall writing i think so those elements were around were you getting high at the time at all no you're shaking your head yeah i mean the thing is that the very first lsd thing that i remember being talked about was when the beatles dentist slipped them some lsd tablets at a dinner party without telling them that was after we'd broken up so there was a period of time when there was a drug explosion but we were not on the road by that time. interesting so i think in a way that i mean i was never particularly personally attracted to drugs i mean i didn't mind other people doing them i wasn't aghast that people were doing that it just didn't feel anything that i particularly wanted to do but i think in a way it removed us from the scene. I'd formed Argent by 70. We were doing Colin's solo album by that time. He then went out on the road and etc. cetera, et cetera. But I think we were inured to that for maybe a, quite a crucial three-year period. So to answer your question and none of us were doing any drugs that's at all that's amazing quite frankly listening to and loving this album I would not have
1: guessed that <laughs> no there you go no, but, you know, quite, you know, it is quite funny because I, I can remember us the recording sessions at Abbey Road it was very strict it was quite old fashioned yeah, considering it yeah. was a cutting edge studio in the world yeah. you worked from 10 till 1 you had to stop at 1 then you went from 2 till 5 you had to stop and it was 7 till 10 and especially in the studio we were in studio 3 we were right next door to an apartment block and it wasn't very very well soundproofed so you had to stop at 10 o'clock and we would sometimes if we were feeling a bit racy at one o'clock we would nip round the corner to the pub and we might have a, a pint of beer i mean that was it that was us. as far as it went yeah. yeah so care of self 44 which
0: is a wonderful song let's hear a little bit of that The idea is the the girlfriend in the song is in prison. What did the girlfriend do? (laughs)
2: Uh, Whatever you think she did. (laughs) I always remember, um, it's funny with songs, people take them so literally, but I always remember Bob Dylan being asked about one of his songs. "Uh, What's this about? Bob and he said, Well it's about two and a half minutes (laughs) You know. And, And that was his feeling about the meaning. And it's sort of whatever it means to you. But I mean I started writing that. I was feeling in a particularly good mood one day and I started writing a conventional love song with a very up sort of feeling at the very beginning. And then I thought, this sounds so ordinary, although I'm enjoying doing it. You know, let me imagine a different scenario. And I thought, well, what about someone who, for whatever reason, has had to go to prison and it's actually disrupted these people's lives. But she's coming out again soon. And the feeling about that, you know, the feeling of joy of the next part of the life starting, that would be a cool spin on a love song. And that's all it was really. Colin, yeah. your
0: vocal on that song is so gorgeous. Oh, we're, thank you.
2: What were you trying to sound like?
0: What was the model? Because you then became truly the model for, I would say, a generation of sort of like indie pop artists who re- just that sweet delicate tone people
1: have been trying to imitate that so what were you trying to do <laughs> no I wasn't trying to Im- imitate anyone especially not by that time even then Rod and I would work very closely on phrasing of songs and that's where I got my impetus for performance was from what we were doing yeah so I, no I wasn't influenced by anyone but I would say about that particular song and it always made me laugh should I have had a career in record Companies like on the A and R department picking singles. I thought that was a standout track. Yeah, oh, Care of Cell 44. I thought it's a smash, and it was released and <laughs> absolutely nothing in the UK. And, yeah. and also, I was never very keen on Time of the Season, and I mean, it almost didn't get recorded because it was the last thing that was written for the album It was finished in the morning before we recorded it and i didn't really know that song that well and we were running out of money for the studio time i had a big clock in front of me i knew we hadn't got long to finish this vocal and i was struggling with the phrasing and rod was encouraging me from the control room and saying colin no it's not quite that it should be this and the clock's ticking my blood pressure was going up and we broke into a huge row everyone could hear in the control room right? and it went down Famously, the line yeah. of because he kept trying to help me If you're and, so fucking good you come and sing it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was. Yeah. If you're so good you come and sing it and Rod's retort was you're the bloody lead singer you stand there till you get it bloody right and at the same time I'm singing it's the time <laughs> of the season <laughs> for loving and, but that's what's going on in the background
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell me about writing and arranging that song because I think that's where the
2: composition idea comes in. I think the writing and arrangement is very much of a piece for you. It really is. And like everything else, we only had a a limited budget, so it was the last thing written. I remember writing that song. I was sharing a flat with Chris White, and as we did on all the songs on the album I said, Chris, I've just written this song. I think I've written the last song on the album. I said, do you know what? I think this could be a hit. I honestly did say that as I played it to him. And we went away and we rehearsed it as much as we could before we got into the studio because we knew we only had a, a session or two sessions at the most to record it finish it and it was probably another session to mix it actually and it was written around a little broken drum part but when we actually recorded it as we used to in those days we put down the opening bass and drum part but i said to hugh do you know hugh i can hear a clap just before the snare on the backbeat and then a little something um artificial coming after it like do 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 yeah and he said well just go in and do it and so literally cole i think it was about three or four minutes yeah, just went absolutely. in and went ah, yep. and that became the rhythm with the backbeat and i have wow. to say that that was one of the songs that jeff did on the album um and even at that time i thought i love the character i don't know how he's done this that he's got with the toms mirroring the bass it just sounded right immediately and pretty magical and it came together very very quickly so It was a mixture of improvisation and intuition with what we prepared as well. But, you know, all the harmonies had already been rehearsed. But that rhythm thing was a combination of being... Honestly, Brian, we were so excited because we were producing things ourselves. Because if we had an idea about how something should sound, it turned out that way. Mm. And this was such a revelation to us because that had not been happening. You heard that rhythm part in your head. Uh, Honestly, and I believe that some of that, again, indirectly came from... Our earliest days of listening to the Beatles because I loved in their early records the way Ringo would always automatically play a broken or often play a broken drum rhythm in the verse. Explain what you mean by broken. You mean kind of syncopated really, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. on a
0: pattern rather than a groove. You know, Actually, what you mean is the same thing as a breakbeat, really. <laughs> I, I guess so, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but it was something that came out of his imagination yeah. and how he heard things, and he yeah. would do that very quickly. And I love that on Hard Day's Night. I know that when I did the tour with Ringo in 2006, yeah. it was absolutely great playing with him. But when it came to She's Not There, he wasn't quite hearing what the drum rhythm was. And I said, Ringo, the <laughs> whole idea of that was based on the sort of thing that you did. And I was trying to think of something that was within that area. Yeah. And I said... Ticket to ride, I, yeah. Uh, No, no. well, Ticket to Ride is completely the sort of thing. I said, can you remember what you played on Not A Second Time? Now, it wasn't the same as She's Not There, but it was that same sort of broken up syncopation that he played in the verse and then he would go into a groove you know and i always loved that because it just felt so imaginative so in a way it was bearing all that in mind still by the time we did time the season even though it was my take on it you know right and inevitably because nothing would ever
0: quite go right with the music business and the zombies it took a while for that to become a hit in the
1: meantime you had basically broken up right we had broken up, but remembering that it was a very singles-dominated market in those days. Care of Cell 44, my favourite track, <laughs> the, the most commercial track on the album as I saw it, came out in the UK, and absolutely nothing. And I think we all felt it was time for us to move on to other projects. There wasn't a huge falling out, it was just a realisation that perhaps it was time to move on. And that's what we did. Rod eventually started uh, Argent, and I started a solo career in the UK. When
2: Chris and I were still involved with Conny. Oh yeah, we they produced, they produced my yeah. first
1: album. And meanwhile, it took about a year and a half for time of the season to be a hit in America, but by then we were all committed to other projects, so there was no way we could get back. And there were like fake zombies touring. There again. were, yeah, there were indeed. I think there were at least three fake zombies. One of whom turned out to be ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Oh yeah, yes. I heard that
0: story. Yes. Yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. It
1: was two of them anyway. <laughs> good, I think. Good Dusty luck and to Frank them. Beard yeah. were in this. I program, think good yes. luck to them, all of them, because. I like to see musicians working you know it's so hard it's it quite hard. amused me actually yeah. to be honest it's so hard when you're a musician just to survive and so <laughs> i like to see musicians working and if that's their chosen line of work then great and obviously they've gone on to do wonderful work after that a denny lane wrote one of your solo hits it a is. song called say It don't mind which is a yes. lovely
0: song let's hear that
1: i realize that i've been in your eyes some kind of fool
0: I I don't know if a lot of people in the U.S. know that as well, but it's it's a a wonderful song. What do you remember about that?
1: Well, um, we were very fond of the original. Danny Lane is a great writer and a great performer, and we've been very fortunate to tour with him, actually. He's a lovely bloke. And the Zombies, uh, we used to do this in our live act... We finished S- off with it. Yeah, actually. we used to f- rock and roll version of it. Yeah, and it's sort of rock and roll version. And when we were recording my first solo album, we thought of this song, and we tried it as a rock and roll song to start with, and it didn't really work. But we've been working with a wonderful string arranger called Chris Gunning. And I'm not quite sure the path of how this happened because Rod kind of claims it was him and Chris claimed, Chris White claims it, it doesn't, was him. It doesn't
2: matter. But we had this premise of trying to make this a really unusual album. And I said to Chris, why don't we make the, well, it was Chris who knew Chris Gunning that's without any question he said i know this wonderful string arranger i said fantastic i said why don't we take it down a really adventurous path and the very first song we did was misty roses the tim Hardin song which colin found beautiful beautiful song and i said why don't we do the first part in a sort of jazzy way but then in the second part let the strings have it in a really avant-garde classical way take it down the the path of a, a bartok string quartet and we said that to chris gunning wow. and i loved how that turned out i just adored it i wanted to do most of the rest of the album that way but it, it sort of came back to more conventional well, things Yeah, but
1: you know rod from memory on that album the couple of tracks that are more ordinary. I think they'd already been recorded, hmm. and and I think maybe that's so. There was probably pressure from the record company saying, you know, listen, those tracks are recorded. You've yeah. got to
2: use them. <laughs> That'd be
1: Carol, you know,
2: you might you might well be right Mary, about that. But I mean, for me, the nucleus of the album that's so good the is strings. the string rating. Absolutely. And Colin, you know, worked assiduously because when he got to the melodic thing in the last part of Misty Roses again, it was so dissonant that he had to pitch his voice over this really. Dissonant and, oh, um, tough, yeah. harmonic yeah. thing but it was a wonderful effect and do you know it's amazing the people who's favorite track of all time that is we were doing um, a festival with the black crows in um spain, spain. and and the singer came down for our sound check and to see our set which was miles away from the time when they were on he said i've just got to hear misty roses he yeah. said because he said not that we were doing uh, actually well, we didn't do we it we probably didn't <laughs> do it that night but he said that is my favorite track of all time of wow. any record and wow. you think well you would never have put that together you know no. but musicians are, are much more open-eared
0: you know that's always proves to be true well, let's hear misty roses as well
1: You look to me like Mr.
0: Roses. Argent, I always think about it, I think of it as a prog band, really, a bit. Uh, well, it, beca-
2: it became that, but, yeah. you know, the thing was, there was such always a feeling in the air of wanting to explore and push the boundaries all the time. Now, to people who haven't heard the first two albums of Argent, I think they're very special albums, the Argent album and Ring of Hands, and I think they're an extraordinarily intuitive progression from the zombies they sound like a direct progression yeah, to me, it feels two. like of a piece absolutely yeah yeah and by the time we had our hit that was on the third album which was all together now we were trying out things and pushing things in a different way we were back in abbey road which was a harder sounding studio and slightly heavier things that were a result of the people that were in argent and exploring different directions were coming about and we were just trying to push boundaries, really. And some of the things work better than others, I think. Strangely enough, my favorite two albums of Argent are the first two, which came before hits. Well, it's funny. I mean, hold your head up, obviously, is I don't even know if you you fully
0: could be aware of of what a classic rock radio staple that's been in America. I mean, probably people end up hearing that more than any zombie song, which is wild. You know, it's just... (laughs) It's drilled into our heads and what do you remember about putting that song together?
2: Well, I remember at the time with hold your head up It was a time when it was very unfashionable to have hit singles It was starting to become just really mainly an album market and we didn't want to record singles And we were recording a new album and we had a tour booked But as was always the case, we were miles behind with the recording And we went to Holland to do a short tour and meanwhile cbs had become very frustrated and they put out an ep an extended play record with about four tracks on it but because hold your head up was so long it was six minutes 30 seconds three minutes of which was an organ solo (laughs) um, (laughs) they put that out but in spite of that there was a dj called alan freeman in the uk who absolutely loved it he played it every saturday morning And unbelievably, that long version, that one play a week, was getting it to just below the top 30 singles charts. And we went to Holland, CBS said... Phoned us up and said, we've cut out the organ solo, we've made it into a a three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute song, and we think this could be a hit. And we were up in arms about it. Uh, But we came back, it had broken into the top 30, we did a a TV show, next day it sold 12,000 records, and, and it was off, and it became a top five record. But there again, I'm so pleased we did it, in retrospect, because... I mean, even this Christmas, I had the radio on, and Rick Waitman was on the radio, and he said, in my opinion, the the best organ solo that has ever been on any record is this record. And he said, will you play it, and will you play the long version? And I thought, Rick, that's fantastic. It's so sweet, you know, that he did that. But it has lasted, and throughout our career, in whatever way, we've always done things because we felt they were exciting, or because musically, we wanted it to work. And as Colin earlier said, I think in the short term, That's sometimes held us back. But in the long term, the sort of honesty of that has actually continued to touch people. And it's meant that things have lasted. Absolutely. And, you know, before the sort
0: of miracle of the uh, revival of Odyssey and Oracle and the reunion of the zombies,
1: Colin, you you worked a day job for a while. I had to. The three non-writers, for people who don't know about this part of the music business. Writing is a completely different income stream to touring and very often as a writer you have much lower um, expenses, so you need a pencil and paper and a piano or pencil and paper and a guitar probably will get you by. And we had a very good publishing company, so that meant that Rod and Chris were in a totally different situation to the three non-writers. When the band finished, Hugh Grundy, our drummer, Paul Atkinson, our guitarist, and myself. We had to get jobs. I had absolutely no choice. And I was in a bizarre situation where I just rang up an employment agency and said, have you got any jobs? I didn't know what else to say. Have you got any jobs? And of course, I don't think they said, well, what experience have you got? Because it could have been a strange conversation. (laughs) I've been traveling around the world with a rock rock band. (laughs) And I don't know what that would uh, qualify for me for but i just got an office job but i had to i wasn't looking for another career basically i was trying to eat you know i was trying to find food to eat and uh i worked there for about a year i quite enjoyed it because it was very very busy and i was devastated when the band finished and i didn't have time to dwell On what had happened and what had gone wrong and all the things that could have been better i didn't have time to dwell on it because it was a very busy office although i didn't understand what was going on i had (laughs) no idea what was going on but i realized the phones kept ringing and they needed to be answered And I'm quite a good bluffer. So I used to answer and tell people what they wanted to hear. It was in insurance. I know nothing about insurance. Well, you know what? Even
0: people who end up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had to work day jobs, and that's inspiring for all of us. But
1: please, don't don't anybody phone in and ask for insurance (laughs) advice because I am the wrong person.
2: (laughs) Colin told a very funny story, actually, to us about the fact that when he was in the insurance department, they used to... Ensure some very high net worth individuals, and he would always have to check his figures. And he says sometimes the different checks came out millions of pounds different.
1: Apart. <laughs> I, I would add it up. <laughs> People were multimillionaires, and they had statues and paintings, and we were not. So I would add it up once, and it would come to you know seven million and something because there were no computers. Then I'd add it up again, and it come to five million. And I think, oh dear, <laughs> I better ring it <laughs> I'd add it up a few more times. And I would get sort of six or seven different figures. So I just take the one in the middle and uh, <laughs> just hope there weren't any burglaries or they didn't lose anything. God knows what was going on with all the clients I was Sounds having. like modern day government to yeah. me. <laughs> yes, in, in the UK, that's mm, very yeah. true. So
0: on that note, it's been wonderful to have in the studio Rod Arjun and Colin Blundstone of the Zombies who are being inducted into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thanks so much, guys. And Thank you. Thanks, Brian. That's brilliant. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius X volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and as always thanks for listening and we'll see you next week